Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022, the 667th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find all of the links, including to the merch store at linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's talk today about the state of disinformation online. And of course, any conversation about that will likely revolve around Twitter. This morning, Elon Musk liked a tweet from the journalist, I guess, Ian Miles Chong, where he said Twitter might have stopped World War Three when Zelensky and MSM outlets were reporting that Russians attacked Poland. Polish journalists and independent military analysts were quick to point out that the missiles were Ukrainian in origin. This lowered the temperature significantly. And that is the sort of utterly basic 
analysis that we get from very serious intellectuals and very popular Twitter people like Ian Miles Chong. And no offense to him, he does some decent work. It's just representative of a culture there and a level of understanding that exists at the intellectual kids table on Twitter. And he's actually pointing out in his tweet the problem with Twitter as it has existed over the last few years. He is attributing credit for the fact that Tuesday's false flag operation in Eastern Europe didn't escalate immediately into the United States joining a kinetic war against Russia as a result of NATO's Article 5 and considering the attack against Poland as an attack on all NATO members requiring NATO to respond. He credits that to Twitter. Now, consider where we are in the world and consider how Twitter has been over the last few years. Twitter has been a fully censored space. And it's funny because people don't understand that once censorship begins, then the environment is censored. It's not like every single thing has to be censored. There is censorship there, which means that certain information and certain perspectives and certain voices are not allowed to be part of the conversation. So already something is missing from a full understanding of the world. If you're in a censored information environment, the people on the left don't really think that Twitter is censored because they are not the ones being censored, but they are still subject to the product of censorship. They're not getting all the information, so they're going to be left ignorant. And you can see the effect that's had. Ian Miles Chong is aware of the effect. That is what he's pointing out right here. But he's making that point from the perspective of someone who has been at the intellectual kids table for the last two and a half years. It turns out there are other platforms that have been doing this very same thing for the entire time. Anons on the chans and the boards have been figuring out and discerning true information and spreading it around as it is spread. It gets vetted and the good information continues to spread. It gets vetted again. It spreads again. Eventually it reaches people with expert level understanding on any given issue and they can vet it. And once they vet it, then it becomes part of the mainstream conversation. This is how the information flow has worked for years. Not that you would expect anyone on Twitter to understand that people on Twitter believe that Twitter is where information begins, but Twitter has been censored. So it's more accurate to understand the situation as being Twitter is where information goes to die. As soon as good information reaches Twitter, that's where the censorship starts. That's where they try to make sure that it never gets to that point of being vetted by experts and spread by experts. So they will eliminate those experts if they're worried those experts might continue to spread true information that conflicts with the official story and conflicts with the central narrative. It's not Twitter that stopped the kinetic World War Three from starting due to a false flag the other day. All of the people who think that are missing the fact that the entire Ukraine thing could have been avoided if it weren't for censorship. There are other places on the Internet, ones that we operate in and that we learn in, 
where the entire Russia-Ukraine war has always been, on some level, a hoax and a farce. And we were spreading that around. We were trying to get that information to the right people so that better decisions could be made. But that information made it to Twitter where it was fact-checked and censored and ignored and called a conspiracy theory. And people with their little Ukraine flag emojis said that everyone even discussing those things was supporting Vladimir Putin and his propaganda regime while participating in a propaganda and censorship regime on Twitter. So he has identified the proper function. He understands the mechanism and what's going on here. But the next step is to understand if you've been learning from a system like that for years now and have not stepped outside of it, you're the one who's remained ignorant as a result. And to the extent that you continued to support that censorship, you thought censorship was something we should have very serious intellectual discussions about around the margins. You thought the right approach was to have very serious intellectual conversations about how much it was appropriate to segregate the unvaccinated. If you spent your time doing that over the last couple of years, you're part of the problem. And that is what Twitter created. It created conversations like that, where the outcome is already assumed to be moral and good. They assume that the unvaccinated must be segregated in order to save lives. And then they just talk about the degrees and how they can justify it morally. They assume that censorship is necessary because disinformation is the biggest problem in the world. And then they just discuss the degree to which it's justified for them to censor ideas they don't like. And Elon Musk at this point does not seem immune to that conversation. I'd like to think that he's getting better as this goes along and that there's some path toward real progress that he's following here. And that path will eventually lead to free and open speech on Twitter. But he wrote just this morning. New Twitter policy is freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. Negative slash hate tweets will be max deboosted and demonetized, so no ads or other revenue to Twitter. You won't find the tweet unless you specifically seek it out, which is no different from the rest of the Internet. Now, okay, but Twitter is not like the rest of the Internet. Twitter is an app that is designed to show you information that you might want to see Based on who you're following, the best way to accomplish that is to go back to a chronological feed that shows you everything the people you're following are posting, not the algorithm that tells you what it thinks you should see. And the real question is what constitutes negative and or hateful speech? First of all, those cannot be the same thing. And obviously he mentioned both, so he doesn't likely consider them the same thing, which makes it strange to think he would be treating them in the same or similar ways. The idea that hate speech is a real category of speech needs to be dispensed with forever, and I hope that happens soon. Nobody likes to see hateful speech or to hear hateful speech, but that's not a justification for censorship.
I don't think anybody denies that the world could be a kinder and more moral place. It doesn't mean that censorship is the way to achieve that. In fact, censorship is the best way to make sure that doesn't happen. I have full faith in the community of people to be able to handle and effectively respond to speech they don't like. Doesn't mean we need cancel culture. Doesn't mean we need mobs. You can ignore it. You can block the person you deem to be hateful. You can use your own speech to point out why that speech is hateful and shouldn't become part of the public discourse. But what in the world is negative speech? Is that just something that someone doesn't like? Who decides what's negative? If Klaus Schwab is out there promoting his transhumanist dreams and I say, hey, that sounds like dystopia, commie. Is that negative? I mean, not from the perspective of someone that actually likes humans and likes humanity and doesn't want to see us turned into cyborgs like John Fetterman or subjugated into slavery like Muslim Uyghurs in China. Members of Joe Biden's administration are out all over the place online. They've attracted the left wing media to repeat the talking points. They've attracted some very edgy centrists and some establishment conservatives to repeat the talking points. Why is everyone talking about Joe Biden? Why is everyone talking about Hunter Biden's laptop when the real issue is inflation and gas prices caused by Joe Biden? If I respond to these people, uh, hey, Joe Biden has spent five decades in politics profiting off of political corruption and criminality while he sells American interests to our foreign adversaries. And oh, by the way, just so happens to be the patriarch of this crime family where his children have led depraved lives of degeneracy. And it's because of Joe Biden's abuse. Is that negative? Does that statement of actual facts about Joe Biden's career constitute negative speech that means I have to be max de-boosted so that no one ever sees what I have now said? Is that negative? No, that's just censorship. The max de-boosting of a statement like that is just censorship. It might as well not exist on the platform at all. We are supposed to believe that it is somehow better that the tweet is allowed to go up and that our accounts aren't allowed to be taken down because of it, even though the system of power is deciding what is and is not allowed to be seen by others on the platform. I'm not asking to have my statement boosted so everyone in the world sees it, but my followers should be able to see it. People who are interacting with the same post from a degenerate member of the fake administration, like, for instance, Ian Sams, they should be able to see it. They should be able to see it on the very same justification that people need to see it wasn't Russia that launched those missiles that went into Poland the other day, even though the comedic actor 
the installed puppet president in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, pled to the world that the world responds militarily to the false flag in Poland. How do you defeat something like that? Well, with the spread of information. How do you defeat many of the problems we have in this country right now? Well, one of the biggest problems is that we have a fake president who is also a corrupt political criminal who is implementing the global communist agenda in our country and is the patriarch of a degenerate criminal family. The best way to stop all that is for the public to have full knowledge that it's happening in the first place. If you're going to de-boost people's responses, laying out those facts for the American public on the basis that they can be seen as negative by those who are controlling the systems of power, well, then that is exactly the same as censorship. And it's the censorship that's dangerous, not the disinformation. We can take care of disinformation without a problem as long as that disinformation exists in the same free market of information as the true information that can dispute it. The only solution is to open the thing up completely. And that may well be what Elon Musk is attempting to do. Maybe the process just does take this long. I am happy to keep watching it and hope that it keeps improving, but it has not really improved yet. That said, Elon Musk has continued to fire Twitter employees, which is awesome. And he just completed another round of that this week. Last night on Twitter, all of the communists in media, the blue anons, the paid influencers for the illegitimate regime, everybody involved with MSNBC in any way, apparently, they were all out there declaring that Twitter was going to die last night. Like Twitter just wasn't going to exist anymore this morning because of what Elon Musk was doing. Now, I don't know what they're afraid of, but it definitely seems to be something. It's possible that the idea of Twitter's eminent demise might have just spread naturally yesterday, but it was timed out pretty well. Everybody reacted to essentially no information in the same way, which leads me to believe it's coordinated because it had no factual basis from the beginning. And of course, what they were claiming did not happen. So why in the world were they all claiming it? And I guess that remains to be seen. Elon Musk put Jordan Peterson and Kathy Griffin and the Babylon Bee back on Truth Social today. He said not yet in terms of Trump. But then why is Donald Trump censored from Twitter and these other people aren't? Donald Trump is now a candidate for president of the United States of America. He shouldn't be barred from that platform. But he still is. Maybe they were just worried about all the firings. Twitter would surely collapse after another round of firings. This all comes on the heels of Elon Musk sending an email company-wide on Wednesday. This is from TheVerge.com yesterday covering it. Elon Musk's new email pushes Twitter managers to do his dirty work. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. You know, owners, CEOs, 
What are they thinking when they ask people in the company to do the work their role allows them to command their employees to do? Who, if anyone, does Elon Musk feel is an essential part of Twitter? Whose contributions are valuable enough and hardcore enough for him? Would you be willing to bet your job on it? In new emails sent to Twitter employees today and obtained by The Verge, Musk dares managers to approve remote work at their own risk. At the risk of stating the obvious, any manager who falsely claims that someone reporting to them is doing excellent work or that a given role is essential, whether remote or not, will be exited from the company, he writes. He has given all employees until 5 p.m. Eastern Thursday to say yes to staying at his quote-unquote extremely hardcore Twitter or leave. Here is what Musk wrote in his emails. Regarding remote work, all that is required for approval is that your manager takes responsibility for ensuring that you are making an excellent contribution. It is also expected that you have in-person meetings with your colleagues on a reasonable cadence, ideally weekly, but not less than once per month. At risk of stating the obvious, any manager who falsely claims that someone reporting to them is doing excellent work or that a given role is essential, whether remote or not, will be exited from the company. While the first message might seem to soften Musk's previous soundbite of a stance, if you can show up in an office and you do not show up at the office, resignation accepted. The reality is that Musk had previously suggested he was going to take responsibility for denying remote work requests. So you got that? The Verge is covering for the managers who were going to cover for the stay-at-home employees who were not producing excellent work. The manager would just say they are, and that would be it. There would be no accountability for the manager. It was going to be Elon that had to decide all that himself. He's not allowed to demand accountability from managers, according to The Verge. Managers will send the exception lists to me for review and approval, he wrote on November 10th, the day after his first Q&A with employees. But now he's telling those managers that anyone who stands up for a remote worker is putting their head on the chopping block, too. I can almost hear a movie villain now. Who else wants to play hero? Oh, yes, TheVerge.com. It is so dramatic. Elon Musk is like a movie villain because he is demanding that the managers who claim that their subordinates are doing excellent work from home be accountable. That is what all evil villains have always done. Is he planning a chemical weapons attack on the Twitter offices to target these specific managers? No, he's just asking them to be honest in their role as managers. It's now in the best interest of every Twitter manager to say no to remote work requests, even if they believe they're deserved. And that way, Musk won't have to say no himself. Imagine being a modern millennial communist who writes for these tech outlets and thinks that these are the focal points. These are the things that really matter in this situation. The manager should not do his or her own job honestly and accept accountability for his or her subordinates behavior and work product 
they should simply make the calculation that leaves them with the least risk or exposure for their decisions affecting the business. Imagine the cultural interpretation of work and specific work cultures inside that that produce these sorts of ideas that are inherently opposed to meritocracy and accountability. It's no surprise that these organizations are so easily corrupted and controlled when they're all filled with lazy and degenerate communists who actually think that they have a better idea on how to make things work when this is how they think things work. Incidentally, a disabled employee is now suing Twitter over Musk's ban on remote work. You got that? They found an outlier case, and now someone is bringing a lawsuit so they can attempt to tie Elon Musk's hands in how he's able to handle his company in hopes that he will change his remote work policies. Now, consider how much Elon Musk has been attacked over these weeks since he has taken control of Twitter and even before. And then remember, this is a tech company. Are they subject to outside influence? Why would you allow more people to do remote work than absolutely necessary? Wouldn't you want Twitter to be a tightly run organization, knowing the possibility of outside influence and knowing the history of outside influence within Twitter? Actually being at the office and there and accountable in person seems like one of the best possible strategies to pursue. Twitter was once the foremost company offering remote work. In May 2020, the company announced its employees could work from home forever. When it reopened its offices in March 2022, then CEO Parag Agrawal reiterated that working from home forever would still be an option. So Twitter employees are very, very upset and tech bloggers understand that they're very, very upset, which makes them the tech bloggers very, very upset, too. And now once all of the millennial communists in the tech community are very, very upset, that means that something must be changed, except that claim only works on communists. The whining and complaining isn't going to solve anything. Here is Elon Musk's note from Wednesday. A fork in the road. Going forward to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and succeed in an increasingly competitive world, we will need to be extremely hardcore. This will mean working long hours at high intensity. Only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. Twitter will also be much more engineering driven. Design and product management will still be very important and report to me, but those writing great code will constitute the majority of our team and have the greatest sway. At its heart, Twitter is a software and servers company, so I think this makes sense. If you are sure that you want to be part of the new Twitter, please click yes on the link below, and there's a little form if you're one of the employees that wants to keep going. He says, anyone who has not done so by 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow, Thursday, will receive three months of severance. Whatever decision you make, thank you for your efforts to make Twitter successful. Elon. Now, that's kind of an incredible message. He's saying to everyone at the company, this is not day camp for TikTok tweens. 
anymore. This is a real job with real responsibilities. You get paid a very high salary. And for that salary, we expect exceptional work product. And it was just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, every couple of days over the last three or four weeks, we have heard about how Twitter employees losing their jobs is very, very sad. We know that the company is almost exclusively filled with communists, and we are supposed to be very, very sad about them losing their jobs, even though there was a Twitter scandal a few years ago where Twitter was censoring the phrase learn to code, which became a controversy because the phrase was mocking people like Twitter employees who thought that laid off coal miners should just find new jobs in high tech industries like Twitter. Their jobs were worthless. They should just go train for these perfect jobs like they have. It was basically the Internet's version of let them eat cake. They didn't like having it thrown back in their faces. But we're supposed to care about the jobs of Twitter employees. Except the thing is, Twitter employees don't care about their own jobs if their own jobs require them actually working. They just wanted to continue being paid big salaries to not even bother showing up to day camp for TikTok tweens. Now that it's not day camp anymore, it turns out that they don't really care all that much about their jobs. And it's a good strategy because people actually have to identify themselves. Yeah, hey, you know what? I'm really not a very hard worker. I appreciate the $180,000 a year salary, but this just isn't for me. I didn't know that there would be work involved. And so the employees just took off. Why should we care about their jobs if they don't care about their jobs? There's a man on Twitter named Oliver Campbell who wrote a great thread about what's happening at Twitter right now. He said, all right, I'm going to explain what Elon Musk is likely doing over there at Twitter. This is not a discussion on whether it's right or wrong, just what's happening. If I'm wrong, I'm sure he'll pop up and say so. What Elon is engaged in is something called whaling and culling. First, the whaling. It's a common refrain that you've probably heard at some point or another. 10% of people do 90% of the work. That's what that tight two-week deadline for Twitter Blue was for. He was perfectly aware that it was an unrealistic time frame. It was a test. By pushing for such an extremely tight deadline, Elon got to see who is actually doing work and who is resting on their laurels. Furthermore, it proved who could actually perform under extreme pressure. You know, the whole get this done or you're fired level of pressure. Hence, Elon was looking for the whales at the company, the heavy hitting, actually producing and hard people who have been there for a while. When the whales don't have to carry dead weight, they perform like the equivalent of 10 people. Second is the culling. When you've got 90% of the people not performing, they're actually negatively impacting the 10% who are performing above and beyond. And that's why the layoffs happened. Paraphrased, shit is going to change around here. Get on board or get out. So by calling unproductive staff, he actually untied the hands of the productive staff. Fewer obstacles to getting in the way of getting things done. It also revealed to him who was there to make Twitter a better product versus who was there to be an activist.
So now you've chopped your workforce down to people who actually perform, but they're not enough to run everything. This is why after those people are let go, there's going to be a surprise hiring of a new bunch of people. Why? Because the productive people actually know what they need to get things done. Don't be surprised if the people that are left get to be part of the interviewing process for the new people. They'll be looking for efficiency and people who don't make their jobs more difficult. So when you continually slice away the bad portions of something, all that you're left with is one of two potential outcomes, nothing usable. It was rotten at the core or some substantially good bits you can salvage and build on. Elon is gambling on too. This is what he was talking about with Twitter 2.0. It's likely not a new Twitter, not for us. It's a new Twitter internally, how things get done, how things get rolled out, rebuilding the company with productive and more efficient people. What I'm saying is take a look at the reactions. The people that are staying at Twitter are hunkering down and working. The people he let go are the ones calling doom and gloom, and they're not wrong. The way things were done is over at Twitter. So from the outside, this looks like a giant cluster. But what's going to surprise you is that a great number of businesses are run exactly like this. There's a reason layoffs happen every single year across the world, whaling and culling. Elon is just being very vocal. Now, one of the issues that we've heard a lot about over the years as a justification for the censorship regime is the Section 230 issue. Today in The Federalist, a man named Jason Fick wrote this article, Federal Court Determines Section 230 is not licensed to do whatever one wants online. On November 3rd, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals rendered a decision in Henderson versus private data that could revolutionize the Internet, concluding that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act does not immunize all online publication decisions. The Fourth Circuit Court just determined Section 230C1 no longer protects a service provider when it acts upon third-party content, i.e. as a secondary publisher or content provider, especially if those substantive contributions are unlawful. Simply put, we have been right all along, and now we have the conflicting circuit court precedent to prove it. The Supreme Court needs to consider the Fourth Circuit's arguments and address this split between circuits. As I've also discussed in Human Events and the Gateway Pundit, Section 230 has two distinct problems. Section 230C1 is untenable as applied, and it is unconstitutional on its face. Prior to the Fourth Circuit's Henderson decision, most courts relying on longstanding precedent like Zeron versus AOL Incorporated, wrongly believed Section C1, not Section 230C2, quote, shields from liability all publication decisions, whether to edit, to remove, or to post, with respect to content generated entirely by third parties, end quote. This statement, taken out of context, is wrong. Courts have consistently misapplied C1's protection to content moderation decisions, more fitting the C2 paradigm. Section 230 C1 was read and applied so broadly that C1 became absolute sovereignty and C2 became redundant protection. Under such reasoning, the California courts came to the arbitrary conclusion that I was treating Facebook as a publisher 
of my own content and that their content development actions, i.e. substantive contributions, did not rise to the arbitrary level of an information content provider. They dismissed my case without truly considering my argument. And it turns out this is what the courts do quite a lot. They use the law in arbitrary ways so that they can dismiss cases that the tech companies need them to dismiss. Over the past 51 months, my attorneys, Jeff Graber and Constance Yu and I, have been arguing that 230C1 cannot logically immunize all publication decisions. In fact, we argued that C1 cannot logically apply to any active content moderation decisions. However, we have not had much success convincing the courts that their longstanding precedent is fatally flawed. Mere days before we petitioned the Supreme Court, things took a strange turn. Another Ninth Circuit case, Enigma versus Malwarebytes, concluded the Good Samaritan general provision of the CDA located in Section 230C does not immunize anti-competitive content blocking. Anti-competitive blocking was the exact cause of action I had advanced in the California courts. My result, however, was different than Enigma's. We hit a unique crossroads. Do we go back to the Northern District of California to argue the Enigma panel conflict and forego our eminent Supreme Court filing? Or do we press ahead, include Enigma in our petition for writ of certiorari and argue it in the Supreme Court? Since our petition was essentially ready to file, it made far more sense to go forward rather than backward. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court declined to take up our case, likely because the conflicting decisions were within the same circuit court. It seems we were a little ahead of our time, as now the conflict is between circuits as well, with the Fourth Circuit's November decision. We also began working on a constitutional challenge of Section 230 and a Motion 60B for the Northern District of California to overturn my original incorrect judgment. It took roughly two and a half months to file our Motion 60B and a little over a year to file our constitutional challenge. Seven months after filing Motion 60B, the district judge, who had retired, rendered a cursory two-page dismissal stating, the order that Fick seeks to vacate based its conclusion on 47 U.S. Code 230C1. By contrast, the Ninth Circuit's Enigma opinion did not involve the application of 230C1. Instead, the court examined 230C2. In other words, the judge essentially said, ignore the typical canons of statutory construction, like reading a statute as a whole text or harmoniously. And just consider C1 as a complete separate statute, exclusive of C2. He essentially said 230C's Good Samaritan general provision, i.e. formerly known as an intelligible principle, does not apply generally to the whole statute. Absolutely bizarre. We thought we might have a little more luck with the Ninth Circuit Court because a circuit court should be inclined to fix its own conflicting decisions. We appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court, calling into question whether Section 230's general provision applies generally or whether it only applies exclusively to C2. Conversely, we also argued if the general provision is not somehow the statute's intelligible principle, the statute is unconstitutional on its face. 
It was a catch-22 argument. Either way, my case should have surpassed dismissal. Rather than grant me justice, the Ninth Circuit Court dismissed my case yet again, erroneously claiming we did not file in the Northern District of California within a reasonable time, even though neither Facebook nor the Northern District Court ever mentioned timeliness. Thinking the Ninth Circuit Court must have missed something in our timeline, we filed a motion for reconsideration on November 2nd, almost as if by divine intervention, the very next day, a decision came down that would change everything. On November 3rd, after more than two decades of confusion, the Fourth Circuit Court finally clarified the proper interpretation and application of its own 1997 Zeron vs. AOL. They correctly held Section 230C1 does not stretch, i.e., read within context, to include actions such as content moderation that exceed basic formatting or procedural publishing functions, like passive hosting functions. Simply put, C1 only applies to passive hosting, not content moderation. Big Tech's glass house is finally cracked. Section 230C1 is not licensed to do whatever one wants online. To be clear, Section 230C1 does not immunize all publishing decisions. Formatting or procedural functions are not active publishing decisions. They are passive service functions of a publishing service, not the active publishing function of an information content provider. The Fourth Circuit distinguished between the two types of publishing functions, passive, procedural, or service functionality, and active publishing and content moderation functionality. In other words, put simply, Section 230C1 does not apply to a service provider's publishing decisions, content moderation. The Fourth Circuit went on to say, an interactive service provider becomes an information content provider whenever their actions cross the line into substantively altering the content at issue in ways that make it unlawful. Because the Fourth Circuit took the time and care to consider Section 230 de novo, something the Ninth Circuit failed to do in my case, Section 230C1 should no longer misapply to the service provider's own substantive alteration or content moderation actions. In other words, the provider or user can, in fact, be treated as a publisher for their own actions, but they cannot be treated as the publisher for the publishing actions of another. The Fourth Circuit just fixed C1 and in doing so created a conflict with the Ninth Circuit. We could not have made it any clearer to the court. We were not treating Facebook as the publisher, i.e. as FIC. We were treating Facebook as Facebook for its own substantive unlawful alterations, such as unpublishing, soliciting a high-paying owner, and republishing the exact same content. In fact, the Fourth Circuit Court went a step further, clarifying 230C1 does not apply when there is no content at issue, which was plainly stated in FIC versus Facebook. This case is not about content. The provider or user cannot logically be cast, i.e. treated as someone else, for someone else's offensive content if there is no content at issue. 
It was no surprise to learn that the Ninth Circuit denied our motion for reconsideration yet again, but not before we timely filed the Henderson decision as supplemental authority that contradicts the Ninth Circuit's interpretation of C-1. I now have a circuit court conflict as I head back to the Supreme Court. Recall the Supreme Court maxim. We hold the general rule to be that where a federal court of appeals sua sponte recalls its mandate to revisit the merits of an earlier decision denying constitutionally protective relief to a punished party. The court abuses its discretion unless it acts to avoid a miscarriage of justice as defined by our constitutional jurisprudence. Recently, the Supreme Court decided to take up two Section 230 cases. We hope that they might also consider our eminent petition because what the California courts have done here is a willful disregard for justice and a blatant violation of their oath to uphold the Constitution. We formally notified the California courts that in denying me all remedy was to deny me of my rights, yet they did it anyhow. Remember, to take away all remedy for the enforcement of a right is to take away the right itself. And he writes in conclusion, we respectfully submit that the Supreme Court should reconsider our previous petition. And if the Supreme Court wants a true comprehensive analysis of Section 230, it should also consider our constitutional challenge. So it's very interesting that all of this is happening in the same time frame. Elon takes over the information weapon that has been deployed by our government in service of the global government, the global order, our defense and intelligence and law enforcement apparatus in this country, and by massive corporations and financial corporations. Twitter has allowed a level of control over how the world works by cutting off conversation that is seen to in any way inhibit the progression and the advancement of that global agenda. And now as that goes away, we see that some of the justifications for all of that, some of the legal justifications are going away as well. And this is certainly interesting, but it's not just some immediate resounding victory. We're in one of those stages where we will see a lot of small related victories of this sort as they try to change and amend the system to make what they did before seem more legal. But we know what they've done before. And this great video was clipped together by an account called Ultra Maga Party from Josh Hawley's questioning of Alejandro Mayorkas in the Senate this week. Mayorkas, of course, being the cabinet member in the illegitimate administration in charge of the Department of Homeland Security. And if you remember, the DHS is the department that was opening up the Disinformation Governance Board and the department that seems to have been tasked with coordinating the censorship regime in partnership with the big tech firms. Review says the DHS plans to target, I'm quoting now, inaccurate information domestically on a wide array of subjects, including, quoting, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support from for Ukraine. 
this is what you're devoting your agency's resources to. So I guess my first question is, is an American citizen who criticizes COVID mandates now to be treated as a domestic terrorist? Uh, you have three inaccuracies in the question you posed to me. Number one, border security is a priority of ours. Number two, the department does not censor speech. And number three, we did not publish a quadrennial review. Does it exist, the quadrennial review? I believe it is uh, being worked on. Well, it, it's been published in the media. Will you make it public? Uh, when it is final, it will be public. Here's my question then. If, if you're not censoring speech and if you're not treating Americans as domestic terrorists, then why is it that you're pressuring big tech to treat American citizens as if they're threats to the homeland? Why are you pressuring them to censor speech? Thank you for taking the time to meet today. Wanted to make sure you saw the steps we took just this past week to adjust policies and what we are removing with respect to misinformation. Are you familiar with that one? Just yes, no. just yes or no. Uh, no, because I'm the okay. Secretary of DHS. Well, I'm asking you that because it's funny you say that. A federal judge has just found as a finding of fact, Mr. Secretary, that your office, and I'm going to quote now, is supervising the nerve center of federally directed censorship. We have example after example of this administration coordinated, apparently, according to a federal court, by your agency, pressuring, coercing social media companies to engage in censorship. Is that constitutional? That is unequivocally false. Is what the emails show. It is unequivocally false, Senator. You're not having any meetings with them whatsoever? Uh, we meet with um, the tech companies. How often? To address, to address the Homeland Security You're saying that, that no one in your office has ever met with, coordinated, or otherwise engaged in any contact with the social media company in which you spoke to them about vaccine mandates, about uh, COVID mask mandates, about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, about the with, about the current uh, U.S. involvement in Ukraine. None of that has ever happened. I, I don't know what you're referring to, Senator. I've cited a federal judge who says your department is engaged in supervising the nerve center of federally directed censorship. Here's my point. The federal government may not use private third parties to engage in activities that are unconstitutional. That's exactly what you and this administration are doing. You are leveraging private companies to carry out censorship on your behalf. It's dystopian, but worse than that, it's unconstitutional. It's also false. So Alejandro Mayorkas is one of the most detestable little gremlins in the fake administration. And you might have caught that right at the end there where he said, it's also false, but it's not false. And the evidence is overwhelming. They had the disinformation governance board. We have the emails showing that they did all this stuff. The court has agreed that as a matter of fact, this is what's happening. And Alejandro Mayorkas is still denying it in sworn Senate testimony. And this is one of those moments where you realize, oh, they really do see that this is existential. They are better off lying to the Senate. There's less likelihood of them getting in trouble that way than if they told the truth about what the illegitimate administration is actually doing. And the panic seems pretty widespread at this point after the Biden investigations were announced yesterday by Representative James Comer and Representative Jim Jordan. The illegitimate regime has taken very little time in figuring out their own response. Today, the illegitimate regime's attorney general, Merrick Garland, named Jack Smith as a special counsel to investigate 
the entirety of the retention of national defense info at Mar-a-Lago and January 6th related issues. Now, the communists online are not sure how to take this. Some of them believe that the walls are closing in again and that this is a lead up to an indictment of Trump. And some of them think that this is going to delay the indictment of Trump for way too long. Trump, either way, must absolutely be indicted for crimes that these communists actually can't explain or even really describe at all. They just know that Trump must be guilty and they don't want Trump around anymore. So the best way to do that is to just put him in prison and hope it all goes away. And to that, I say very good luck to you, communist. But we shall see. My friend Kyle, just human, doesn't believe that this is part of a get Trump effort at all. And who knows? Maybe he'll turn out to be right. But that just came out. I wanted to put that on your radar. The fact remains that the panic level over Republican investigations that could be coming up when the new Congress enters in January 2023 is off the charts. And of course, they must have some sort of response to this. They need to make sure that their information still wins, even in the face of actual corruption and criminality by the fake president. So who do they go to? Well, of course, they go to David Brock, who founded Media Matters and founded Correct the Record and Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. The man is funded by George Soros's Open Society Foundation and the Tides Foundation and a number of other globalist organizations. They are happy to accept dark money in their mission of ridding the world of misinformation, which is anything that conflicts with their progressive agenda. David Brock apparently used to be a conservative, but now he's just George Soros's hatchet man for any media that comes out anywhere that dissents from the central narrative. A confidential memo from David Brock dated October 25th, 2022 was released online. I'm not sure if it was leaked or who found it, who put it out, but it's quite an interesting read about the tactics that they plan to implement in response to these Republican investigations. So I want to share a bit of this memo. This is the introduction. The precarious Democratic majority in both the Senate and the House makes it probable that Republicans will control at least one chamber following the 2022 midterm elections. Lacking a forward-looking agenda and aggrieved by the effectiveness of the January 6th Select Committee, Republicans will spend the next two years aggressively investigating President Biden, members of the administration, and the president's family. They will do so without regard to facts, without concern for fairness, and without limitation. They seek to grind down the entire executive branch, to limit the White House's effectiveness, to halt forward momentum, and to engage in character assassination that distracts from real issues, creates a false perception of corruption, runs up legal bills, and threatens the livelihoods of those caught in their web of lies. You got that? That is what the Republican Congress plans to do to the illegitimate administration. David Brock just described exactly what the Democrat establishment 
and complicit Republicans enacted against Donald Trump for the duration of his presidency and in this period where Donald Trump is a former president. They aggressively investigated the president without regard to facts, without concern for fairness and without limitation. They sought to grind down the entire executive branch to limit the White House's effectiveness, halt forward momentum and engage in character assassination that distracts from real issues. It created a false perception of corruption, ran up legal bills and threatened the livelihoods of those caught up in the web of lies created by the Democrat and Republican establishments in order to take down Donald Trump. And now they are saying that all of that is what Republicans intend to do to the illegitimate president whose crimes are actually proven through direct evidence, verifiable evidence, proven emails that are confirmed to be legitimate bank records, suspicious activity reports, real payments received from real sources, actual conversations the illegitimate president and his son have had. There is actually a full trail of evidence for everything they plan to investigate. There was none of that with Donald Trump. In fact, we know they made it up. We know that the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC and Fusion GPS directed and funded the creation of the Steele dossier. The entire Russiagate scandal was concocted out of nothing. And they spent years investigating it and gumming up the works of the presidency. Nonetheless, they intentionally harmed national security to take down Donald Trump. They subverted the American presidency. And now they're mad that someone's going to investigate actual crimes. Ultimately, their objective is to employ scandal outraged politics to ensure Democrats lose the presidency in 2024. Representative Jim Jordan essentially admitted as much when he spoke to the CPAC conference in early August, telling the crowd that the investigations Republicans plan to conduct will help frame up the 2024 race when I hope and I think President Trump is going to run again. And what does he mean by that? Well, how would these investigations frame up that race? Well, we would finally get a real picture of who exactly Joe Biden really is. They can't have that. Joe Biden campaigned from his basement. He could not attract a single person to his rallies. And the media waged a campaign in his absence. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has declared that they'll investigate the Biden's shady business dealings when Republicans take the House in November. And the likely chair of the House Oversight Committee is already focusing his staff on Biden family investigations, opining that it is a matter of national security to know if President Biden is compromised because of his son's shady business dealings with foreign adversaries. That's 100 percent true. It actually is a matter of national security. The House Freedom Caucus and the America First Caucus, which is even to the right of the Freedom Caucus, will hold considerable sway and demand that committees do Trump's bidding. Further, with an anticipated majority that will be smaller than Republicans initially hoped, they will have a harder time passing legislation and so will place greater emphasis on investigations. Now, wait a second. How on October 25th does David Brock know that the anticipated majority will be smaller than Republicans hoped? Isn't that interesting that he would know something like that two weeks before an election? 
Gosh, how does it happen? Underscoring this point in their recently released commitment to America, House Republicans have made investigating the Biden administration one of their four pillars. They promised to, quote, use all tools at our disposal to pursue the truth, root out corruption and abuse of power and provide transparency to the American people on the issues that matter most, end quote. Frankly, it is quite likely that if Republicans control the House of Representatives, they will impeach President Biden. They believe that Trump lost the election because of his impeachment, and they not only want to engage in a tit for tat, but also seek to weaken President Biden in the same manner in which they believe impeachment harmed Trump. Well, no, that's not true. They want to impeach Biden because he is illegitimate and corrupt. They believe Trump lost the election because the election was stolen, which everyone can see now. People might still deny it. People might pretend that's not what's going on, but the country is watching as elections are stolen. They see what's happening in Arizona with Kerry Lake, and they see what's happening elsewhere. In fact, the less rabid among the Republican Congressional Caucus have acknowledged the significant pressure they will feel to vote to impeach President Biden and others within his administration. Those Republicans know that voting against impeachment will have the same consequence on their political fortunes as having voted for President Trump's impeachment. The only way sitting Republicans can avoid losing their seats in a primary challenge will be to impeach President Biden and others within his administration. Now, that may or may not be true, but if it is true, it's because there is actual evidence and the country wants it. Democrats cannot simply ignore the threat that these baseless maneuvers pose. Scholarship shows that the most ideologically extreme legislators have the greatest incentive to engage in congressional investigations and to push their efforts publicly. You see, they did a study. And further, studies also demonstrate that congressional investigations have greater power to significantly damage a president's support among the public than other forms of scrutiny. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why... That has always been the strategy against Donald Trump. Fortunately, the Biden administration is already planning internally for the barrage of investigations, bringing in Dick Sauber and Ian Sams and structuring the White House counsel's office to be an effective force against investigations. While a strong internal communications and legal team will undoubtedly serve the administration well as it grapples with the onslaught. Recent reports suggest that the White House is not overly concerned about the investigations, believing that Republicans will overreach, as they did with President Clinton in 1998, leading to Democratic congressional gains in the midterm elections and Newt Gingrich's resignation. That analysis, while comforting, misses the mark for two critical reasons. First, Focusing on 1998 fails to account for the role that the relentless investigations into the Clinton administration played in Al Gore's loss in 2000 in an election where all outward indicators would have suggested a victory for the incumbent party. Second, times have changed with the expansive reach of right wing media and the conservative echo chamber. False narratives could outpace facts in mainstream narratives. Oops. Wait, what is that? False narratives could outpace facts in mainstream narratives. He wrote this letter three days before Elon Musk took over Twitter. What did he think was going to happen to their information weapon? 
It sounds like he's saying that the mainstream media and the mainstream information flow is no longer strong enough. That, my friends, is one sentence full of panic. The presidential election in 2024 will be close and simply relying on the hope that facts will triumph over conspiracy is not sufficient. Instead, a robust external force, a SWAT team with additional capacity must also be in place to ensure that the media and public do not accept the false narrative that flows from congressional investigations. An external operation will allow President Biden to stay focused on his own preferred messaging during 2023 and 2024 and on his reelection campaign. We call this effort Facts First USA. So David Brock is planning a new organization called Facts First USA. This is going to be the dominant propaganda machine for the communists as they go through these next two years. They can no longer depend on the propaganda media and the censorship regime. So now they need another organization. And he goes through the history of what he calls the GOP scandal machine attacks. He talks about Whitewater and Travelgate and Filegate. They're very, very mad that anyone ever pursued the corruption within the Clinton administration. He talks about Benghazi. He talks about Fast and Furious. All of these are framed as if they are lies. These are just GOP attacks against democratic administrations. They're not real issues. They're just the GOP beating up democratic administrations for political gain. Even mentions the IRS scandal. Anticipated lines of attack against the Biden administration. In 2020, the Trump campaign found little in Joe Biden's long service to create outrage over. This was not for a lack of trying, of course. But the relentless right wing drumbeat regarding Hunter Biden did not spill over into mainstream coverage that may change, though, with official investigations into the matter. Moreover, Republicans have telegraphed their plan to use congressional control to bombard the Biden administration with investigations to flood the White House with subpoenas and to use the extensive tools of congressional oversight to drive the narrative about the Biden administration during the run up to the presidential election. In short, they seek to define, discredit and destroy, and they are willing to do this through lies and distortions. He goes through the Republican members who will be on these committees tasked with oversight of the illegitimate regime. He mentions what issues they anticipate congressional scrutiny to include Hunter Biden, of course, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the illegitimate regime's border policy. Their handling of COVID, he calls it a conspiracy that it was created in a Chinese lab with funding from Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is just a boogeyman. The Department of Justice investigations. He mentions the possibility of an impeachment coming for Alejandro Mayorkas. He writes from these topics alone, it is clear that the Biden administration will face a wave of congressional investigations that run the gamut from personal to policy, and that spread throughout the entire executive branch. Furthermore, there will be additional investigations that do not directly implicate the administration. For example, 
Republicans will scrutinize the January 6th Select Committee and Silicon Valley tech companies, but could quickly entangle the executive branch. Oh, isn't that amazing? How could the executive branch be quickly entangled in these external issues? It sounds like the administration has a lot of problems, but maybe that's because it's illegitimate and everything it's done has been in direct violation of the Constitution, not to mention the will of the American people. And as both the Clinton and Obama examples demonstrate, once Congress begins an investigation, it can lead anywhere Republicans want it to go. It is therefore impossible to predict the myriad topics and the number of administration officials who will become targets. The analogy to the Clinton and Obama administrations, though, is not perfect. The media today are radically different with misinformation and extreme conspiratorial reporting running rampant. Additionally, our politics is far more calcified and tribal, with a large percentage of Republicans being willing to believe anything bad about Democrats with no regard for whether it is grounded in reality. The rise of QAnon and the big lie being prime examples. These people are deranged. These facts combine to put significant pressure on mainstream journalists to act quickly and to accept packaged narratives without confirming the facts. Oh, yes, that is the problem. The media on the right is just accepting packaged narratives without confirming the facts. Yes, that is what we do. As a result, mainstream thought and opinion has become contaminated. We must prevent the pollution from further seeping into news coverage at the expense of factual reporting. And I'm going to run a little long today, but I think this is worth it. There's a few more pages left and I want to highlight some stuff. This is the section called capacities required for effective pushback. It is not just a matter of the Biden administration versus congressional Republicans. As stated above, the real power of the Republican effort stems from the fact that right wing media will amplify the work attacking the administration, devoting hours upon hours to the revelations from the committee investigations and providing a platform for Republican congressional members to spread falsehoods. Right wing media are already calling for President Biden's impeachment, Hunter Biden's prosecution and Secretary Mayorkas's resignation or impeachment. The 24 hour rage machines volume will only increase if Republicans capture the congressional majority and a significant portion of their agenda centers on investigating all aspects of the Biden administration. You got that? A complete and total reversal of reality. That is what mainstream media has done to Donald Trump for over seven and a half years now. And because the conservative media and congressional disinformation campaigns feeds the other, they can only be satiated by the other's proliferation. So they both need each other. Conservative media needs the congressional investigations and congressional investigations need the conservative media. And together they will both flourish by spreading lies and disinformation. They're just going to attack the illegitimate administration all the time. And everybody's going to know the administration is illegitimate. We can't have that. We can't have people knowing about Joe Biden's five decades in political corruption and about his son's perversion and about the slave trade happening at the southern border. We can't have them knowing about the crimes against humanity committed during covid. Can't have any of that. We need a full media response. We need a strategy so that no one can ever know the truth about all this stuff. 
For these reasons, a key objective of any effort to counter the Republican strategy will be to limit the reach of the right wing rage machine to keep it within their own echo chamber rather than allowing it to become part of the mainstream media coverage. The White House cannot be the sole nucleus for publicly responding to the onslaught of congressional investigations for a number of reasons. First, the administration will want to remain focused on the positive, forward-looking agenda it is presenting to the American people. If the president or his staff appear fixated on the investigations, that narrative will become a fixture in the media. Second, unlike topics that divide the GOP, particularly around former President Trump and abortion, congressional Republicans will unite around many of the investigations. Therefore, only a truly independent outside group with no ties to the Biden White House coordinating a bipartisan response will be an effective counter to the right wing smear machine. A bipartisan response? Who are the Republicans David Brock is counting on to help them in this project? He must have some in mind. I wonder if they're the ones like Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Ben Sass, who all got campaign money through the FTX money laundering system. Or maybe it's Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell who benefited from the same thing. Further, some of the topics may be too personal or delicate for the White House to be responding or even be seen as directing a response. Simply put, there are some things that outsiders with stature and experience managing Democratic war rooms and with deep legal expertise can say that those within the administration should not. Got that? They don't want the administration to directly lie about some of these things because they might inadvertently implicate themselves with legal liability, whereas the outside group can just say, no, we're a free press just saying our opinions. Similarly, the White House should not be the one scrutinizing the media and holding it accountable for reporting false narratives. Finally, the media and the public as well will consider voices from outside the administration as more credible than those inside. It is important to coordinate and capitalize on that support. And again, that is always the strategy. This outside group can be claimed to have no connection to the administration, but you can see right here that the reason they create that space is to alleviate the liability for the administration, but they're still working hand in hand. Even before Republicans take control in January 2023, Facts First will distribute media guidelines for covering these alleged scandals, putting the mainstream reporters on notice that they will be held accountable if they simply buy into Republican propaganda. You got that? The free and fair press will be held accountable if they buy into the Republican propaganda. This is George Soros's misinformation master working with the illegitimate regime to make sure the mainstream media will not publish information that dissents from the central narrative and the official story. 
We will go beyond even those accountability efforts because Republicans are more radicalized than eight years ago and will be more vicious with the truth over the next two years than they ever have been before. Vicious with the truth. Indeed, as Representative Matt Gates recently said, we are going to take power after this election. When we do, it's not going to be the days of Paul Ryan and Trey Gowdy and no real oversight and no real subpoenas. It's going to be the days of Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Dr. Gosar, and myself. But facts first will win the war of public opinion by controlling the narrative. This is David Brock's own words in his confidential memo. We will win the war of public opinion by controlling the narrative, not just by defending against the partisan witch hunt, but by aggressively turning the tables on the attackers with offensive maneuvers and strong counter narratives that reveal their motivations and misconduct and tell our side of the story. We will create an environment of backlash against the Republicans so that the 2024 elections can be decided on the merits. You got that? So they're going to go personally after anyone who investigates the Bidens, any reporters who print information that conflicts with the story the Bidens want to tell, and they will attempt to destroy the, the reputations and lies of everyone who wants to go after the illegitimate administration. That's the plan. Once again, they're telling you very clearly. They write these things down. We don't have to make them up. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's their own words. Experience shows that to effectively push back against the Republican effort to use its oversight power to drive a narrative about the Biden administration, an outside team with the following operational capacities will prove essential. They're talking about opposition research, legal analysis, surrogate coordinating. That means they figure out who's going to say what all across the media. Who is going to say this thing? Who's going to say this thing? Who's going to go after this part? Who's going to go after Jim Jordan? Who's going to go after Matt Gates? They've already started doing that stuff. They went after Matt Gates the last two years. Didn't work, of course, but they still did it. Rapid response so that they can come up against anything. As soon as it comes out, something bad comes out about the Biden administration. Too many people find out. Seems like it's going to be a big story. Well, they've got a rapid response PR team there to handle it. Digital strategy so that they can influence social media. Probably trying to tell social media what needs to be censored, too. Earned and paid communications, bringing the fight to the airwaves with pointed events and paid advertising. What constitutes paid advertising, by the way? Influencer advertising, paid campaigns to celebrity influencers and other influencers who will push their messaging. That's what they're talking about. Paid communications and outreach, coordinating among like-minded groups for maximum pushback and consistent messaging. And he goes through who their team members will be. Maria Cardona, David Jolly, David Brock, of course, who's writing the memo, Michael Teeter, Melissa Moss, and then some other people to be determined later. And you may have noticed that this entire thing sounds like he is selling his organization as a product and trying to get investment in this company. He is convincing the reader that this is what is necessary to take on the investigations that the Republicans will be launching into actual corruption and criminality of Joe Biden and his illegitimate regime. This is the conclusion. 
We propose establishing an independent 501c4 committee to direct and coordinate the outside effort to support the White House against the upcoming attacks by defending and counterpunching, sometimes surgically, sometimes broadly, but always methodically. Facts First will comply with tax laws by entrusting donors with the decision regarding public disclosure of their contributions. A two-year budget is attached. That means they are more than happy to accept dark money. We bring a vast array of experience and expertise to lead this endeavor. And importantly, we are not viewed as Biden insiders, and so we'll have greater credibility with the media as independent actors. Except now you are. You just said we're not viewed that way. You didn't say you're not Biden insiders. You're saying you're going to create a public image that makes it seem like Joe Biden's hands are off all of this, but they're not off any of it. This drive should begin now, but quietly. Republicans are already preparing to begin their investigations in earnest. We know who the main players will be, and we can begin developing research and plans to launch our efforts. So please give us money now. We need to handle all of this stuff. No one is going to ever know. It is amazing how secretive these people want to be in everything they're doing. You heard Alejandro Mayorkas deny their censorship campaigns in Senate testimony. But everyone who has observed these platforms knows that the censorship is completely out of control. It's everywhere. Anyone who's paid attention to politics and news over the last two years knows that it is coordinated through government agencies and organizations. And everybody understands that the media exists to disseminate propaganda. We have lived this. It's not a secret. Everyone can see it. But they always want to work in the shadows. Just maintain enough plausible deniability. Continue to lie and deny until there's no other story left. The media will help. Paid outside organizations will help. Whatever it takes, we must control the narrative. It is all about narrative control. And that is what they know is slipping away. Elon Musk taking control of Twitter has sent them into an absolute panic. They wanted all those employees to remain there because those were going to be their insiders. Those were going to be the people that could still tell them what's going on and tell them how they might be able to navigate the censorship regime. But it seems like it's all slipping away. Hence the panic. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's high!